African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Well, thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa. This is African Dialogue with me, Benjamin Moshatama, for the next hour where we look at the big South African and African stories. Well, our focus today is on South Sudan. We know that there were a lot of conversations happening, and the recent update is that the United Nations Security Council has imposed an arms embargo on South Sudan through a U.S.-drafted resolution that expresses deep concern at the failures of the country's leaders to bring an end to hostilities. An earlier resolution adopted in uh, May threatened an arms embargo and target sanctions if the UN reported by uh, uh, June 30th that fighting had not ended. In a letter to the Council on June 29th, the Secretary General Antonio Guterres said there had been credible reports of fighting and continued serious violations of international human rights and humanitarian law. Let's listen to just a brief report from Sherwin Bryce piece uh, when uh, the decision was made in New York. The resolution passed despite the strong objections of two of the three African countries in the council achieving the minimum nine votes required with six abstentions including from Russia and China. The passage of the text means all UN member states must immediately prevent the direct or indirect supply of sales of weapons, ammunition, military vehicles and other equipment to South Sudan until May 31st next year. Ethiopia in particular strongly objected, warning the move would undermine efforts in the region towards a peace deal after an agreement on security was reached between President Salva Kiir and Riek Mashar earlier this month. The United States said the council had failed the people of South Sudan for too long, calling the resolution a way to end the era of impunity in that country. Well, that's the voice there of uh, reporter Sharon Bryce Peace from the UN headquarters in New York. Well, to assist us on this very long-going uh, political stalemate in uh, South, South Sudan, Sudan, we joined on the line by John Hirsch, who is the Associate Director of Research at the Stockton Center for the Study of International Law and also the Senior Managing Editor of International Law Studies there. Also on the line, we've got uh, Dr. Martin Rupia, the executive director on uh, uh, the issues of politics on the African continent. He's at the African Public Policy and Research Institute. And we've also got Dr. Joanne Nyanyuki, who is uh, joining us from Amnesty International, the international director of East Africa, the Horn and the Great Lakes. Well, we have uh, John Hirsch joining us from the U.S. It's early there in the morning. Let's check if his Skype line is fine. John, can you hear me clearly there? I can, yes. 
Fantastic. It's great having you joining us for this panel discussion. And we also have Dr. Martin Rupia. Dr. Rupia, can you hear me clearly from your side? Yes. Fantastic. Dr. Joanne Yanyuki, am I clear on your side? Yes, Benjamin, you're very clear. Fantastic. Now, let me start the conversation with you, John. And uh, the biggest uh, conversation around South Sudan is surrounded around the uh, area of the United Nations Security Council imposing an arms embargo in the country almost five years uh, after a very, very devastating civil war since uh, the country started. We know this is something that has started in 2013, and many people are asking, is this uh, imposition of the arms embargo a bit too late uh, now that we've seen ourselves uh, five years down the line? Well, the arms embargo certainly could have come a lot sooner than it did. Um, But, you know, as soon as it was proposed, uh, different members of the Security Council over the years have voiced concerns that it would undermine uh, ongoing negotiations and work against peace rather than for it. I just don't think that that is true. well, the arms embargo will not eradicate the, uh, the scores of small arms that are already present in the country. Uh, it could at least help prevent the procurement of heavy weapons, um, including attack hop- helicopters, uh, missiles, anti-tank, anti-aircraft guns and rounds. Um, you know, the last thing that country needs is more weapons at the moment. And while it is unfortunate that it took this long for this to happen, it is better late than never, and it's at least a signal to the leaders of South Sudan that the international community is finally really getting serious about forcing the leaders to find a compromise to this ongoing conflict. John, what do you think has actually created this uh, point that the um, United Nations find itself? uh, I know that uh, the United States uh, also played a huge role in uh, making this particular decision through their drafted resolution. Yeah, it was interesting to see that of all issues, this would be uh, an issue that the Trump administration, very surprisingly, through the leadership of Nikki Haley in particular, were really seized upon, um, along with uh, Ambassador Haley, uh, USAID Administrator Mark Green, uh, visited the country, and others have, have really pushed um, at the Security Council, at the uh, U.S. Embassy to the U.N. to, to, really, to really focus on this. Um, and in that regard, I think that, you know, there was a lot of pressure from the U.S. to really move this forward that hadn't been, um, you know, as committed to this uh, outcome as the, as the previous administration, which, again, is surprising. I think it's equally surprising to me, at least, that um, Russia and Ethiopia in particular were comfortable enough or at least uh, pressured enough to feel that they would uh, not... Uh, not veto the resolution or vote against it. So that's an interesting development for sure. Let me come to you, uh, Dr. Martin Rupia, in terms of uh, your thoughts in this regard. Um, I'm interested in terms of what you think actually is happening here because there are very many 
different dynamics that are taking place. As much as we're seeing countries such as the United States, countries uh, such as uh, Russia, as was highlighted there by John, we also have heard other African countries really saying that they object this particular resolution, especially a country that stood in the forefront was Ethiopia that strongly objected and said that uh, the move would undermine efforts in the region towards a peace deal. What are your thoughts towards those uh, dynamics that are included in terms of those who objected and those who agreed to this embargo? Um, yes, well, thanks. There are two points perhaps, you know, that uh, we must reflect around um, the most recent UN resolution. The first was uh, an agreed position prior to the resolution, where the resolution went through with nine votes. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, six others out of the 15, remember, uh, abstained. Uh, Mm -hmm. Significant on those countries that we, you know, abstained were China and Russia. And, and of course, the comments that then followed in the discussion, uh, um, Ethiopian ambassador, you know, Ambassador Allen, and of course the, and uh, you know, the South Sudanese ambassador himself, appeared to suggest that um, many countries, of course, that the resolution has been passed, were of uh, a different mind. So, so that's one side. The resolution is not enjoying 100%. You know, support. There are some countries that think differently. The second point, I think, is that uh, the players in South Sudan, uh, significantly, you know, the president uh, Salva Kiir, uh, opposition uh, Rek Machar, and Tabang, uh, who was formerly, you know, with uh, Rek Machar and now has changed sides, mm. to expect those three to work together. The sentiment we are getting from the ground is that there is so much uh, um, hatred and differences between these actors that uh, uh, even despite uh, inability to secure arms from outside, they, you know, almost are prepared to even use, you know, uh, crude weapons, uh, anything but not to reconcile and to go forward. So, yes, we understand the thrust of the UN resolution is to almost coerce the parties to begin to sit around and work together. But what we see in the sentiments coming from the ground is uh, clearly seriously divided factions uh, that appear not to have exhausted their willingness to confront one another. Mm. And, and therefore, we must find other options beyond the resolution to find lasting peace. Well, Dr. Joan Yanyuki, what are your thoughts on uh, the moment that we find ourselves here? Clearly, it seems that uh, um, there are different uh, power dynamics uh, in this regard, and we're seeing um, one moment there's uh, hopefulness in South Sudan when it comes to negotiations, and the next moment, as was highlighted by Dr. Martin Rupia, things just start falling apart due to the differences between the various camps. Um, oh, really, what we see is um, is an opportunity, and and we at and we look at it as really the embargo could really be a turning point in in two ways. One, it it does send a very loud message to the to the different groups involved in the in the conflict that um, 
the international community is keen to see the hostilities end. And, and secondly, that um, we do acknowledge, especially from a human rights perspective, that if we can shut off and reduce the supply of arms and ammunition and other equipment that is being used to sustain the war, then we can definitely be able to reduce the human rights atrocities and the abuses to international, um, the violations of international humanitarian law. Mm. So in that sense, then um, we would be able to be improving the conditions that um, those who are displaced and those who are caught up in the conflict are really living under. Um, and so we are, we are quite keen really to see. And when it comes to the power, we're also looking at how the, the, the neighboring states who really have a huge responsibility um, implementing the embargo are going to play up their roles. They're looking at uh, uh. Uganda, Kenya, um, Djibouti, of course. Um, with a bit of, oh, well, I'm losing you there, uh, Dr. Nyanyuki. Uh, we'll see if we can establish that line with you there because I just lost you briefly. Let me come back to you, John Hirsch, as we sort out uh, Dr. Nyanyuki's number and her line. Uh, you know, what's also interesting is to see the South Sudan parliament actually voting for an extension of the turner of President Salva Kiir three years while talks are underway. How does this complicate the situation? I'm sure for Rek Machar's side, it actually uh, probably makes things a little more uh, palatable or less palatable. Yeah, absolutely. That was uh, you know, a surprising development as well. Um, you know, I just think it's uh, the wrong decision at the wrong time. And the, uh, the Troika countries of the U.S., the U.K., and Norway have, have rightly criticized this decision. Uh, it's called it uh, not legitimate. Um, they noted that it's going to undermine the peace process and disregard South Sudanese civil society, uh, which I think is a very important point to keep in mind. That, you know, to avoid this negotiation just becoming another deal between political elites that does not take into account the uh, civil society, the women's groups, the civilians who really suffered during this conflict is a mistake. Um, obviously, the opposition rejects this vote. Uh, um, and I think, you know, the worst part is it's only going to solidify the mistrust between the government and the opposition when there did seem, for however brief, to be a moment of uh, at least openness and willingness to discuss a, a credible end to the conflict. Um, I think this mm-hmm. move just... Uh, sends the exact wrong message. Uh, and, and, you know, it's also noteworthy that Parliament, uh, through this vote, will extend its own terms until 2021. So, uh, you know, just real questions of legitimacy there. Your thoughts, uh, Dr. Rupia? Well, the country was expected, you know, to go for elections in August. And certainly the power mandate for the president was now best for the 2016 agreement, which was coming to an end, you know, towards the end of this year. So what Parliament has done in Juba is clearly to violate all the goodwill and the agreements that, you know, are in place. They have simply, you know, unilaterally passed three years after 2021. Salva Kiir, you know, remains in office. And, and this is the one side that uh, any analyst in terms of reflecting on South Sudan negotiations is to seriously take into account. Uh, this position, for example, 
violates all, I think, the sentiment in the way forward. Because part of the uh, uh, expectation on the election was uh, uh, to use that as an exit strategy out of the crisis. And now what we have, you know, is this unilateral view of uh, an extra three years mandate for, you know, President Kerr. Uh, so it really complicates matters, uh, but also the sanctions that have been passed by the UN Security Council may now be viewed to almost be targeted towards disabling the capacity of the government of Silver Kiev in continuing to acquire, you know, material, war material and equipment from outside. Mm. And also, what it also does, it actually cripples um, uh, the possibility of those elections, uh, you know, because the expectations now actually have changed in terms of the political direction of the country, in terms of expectations of those uh, elections, John. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, You know, I don't think that the country was in any way close to being ready to have elections, given the, you know, looming famine and the amount of conflict on the ground. Uh, But at the same time, uh, this just really is going to complicate the situation and uh, prolong the ill will um, until things can get sorted a little better. I'm, you know, I'm really not hopeful about the uh, about this development. And also what uh, makes things also more complex is uh, the latest ceasefire agreement signed by both the South Sudan President Salva Kiir and uh, Riek Machar. We know they did this under the presence of Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir, which was strange for, for some, uh, John. Yeah, I mean, that was really significant uh, development as well. Um, you know, I think President Bashir is clearly motivated by financial gain. Um, you know, one of the key parts of this agreement, of the uh, Cartoon Declaration, was to improve um, oil production, which, of course, uh, in South Sudan, but, of course, which is pumped uh, through Sudan uh, to the port uh, in the Red Sea. And that's really going to help bolster the Sudanese flagging economy. Um, and I, I don't think, you know, Bashir has a real interest in ending the conflict, but you know, economically, this is good for his country. Uh, it also allows him to play peacemaker, um, which will get, help him to continue his charm offensive with the United States and other uh, Western countries. Uh, he's been pushing very hard after the removal of sanctions for a more um, normalized relationship uh, with the U.S., especially uh, given the dire straits of the economy. Um, and you know, puts him right in the middle of these efforts, and it will help him secure his position in Sudan as well um, as the elections in 2020 uh, continue to near, uh, and he considers his political future. Let me take a quick break, and then I'll come back to uh, Dr. Martin Rupia, Executive Director at the African Public Policy and Research Institute, and Dr. Joel Nyanyuki, who is joining us from uh, um, the Amnesty International. She's the International Director of East Africa, the Horn, and the Great Lakes. What are your thoughts on this? Do you think we'll ever find a way forward for South Sudan? Give us your thoughts on our Twitter handle, at African Dialogue or at Channel Africa One. want to hear your thoughts. 
Sports as we engage with our panel discussion today looking at the current situation in South Sudan. We'll be back after this. Hello. To celebrate African women's achievements, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy, listen to Humanity, Women in Unity, an advocacy radio program against all forms of gender-based discrimination and violence against women. Humanity, Women in Unity, on Channel Africa every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African Time and every Sunday at 5 past 6 Central African Time. Humanity, Women in Unity, with Dr. Amalea Gonez-Malka, every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African Time and every Sunday morning at 5 past 6 Central African Time. Channel Africa, celebrating African women's achievements, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. Well, thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa. This is African Dialogue with me, Benjamin Mushatama, where from Monday to Thursday we look at the big subject matters on the African continent, trying to put some of the uh, conversation into context. And today we're looking at South Sudan and the challenges in the politics of the country there. seems like once again we find ourselves at a political stalemate, but it seems like there is pressure that's now coming through this embargo from outside the country. Uh, that's the United Nations Security Council that has imposed an arms embargo on South Sudan. This is five years after the civil war has started, but others, such as South Sudan's UN ambassador, Akui Bona Malwal, uh, he told the council uh, that the resolution would undermine peace. I know he was also joined by Ethiopia there, who were highlighting that this could actually undermine the efforts to stabilize uh, and also create a way forward after an agreement on security was reached between Salva Kiir and Riek Machar earlier uh, this month. But we know that agreement has also uh, been actually questioned, as was highlighted by John Hirsch before we went to that break. Dr. Martin Rupia, it seems like that uh, uh, peace deal is also one that's also another questionable one. After uh, many uh, previous uh, agreements have been um, agreed upon, Uh, We've seen government forces and rebels launched an attack a few hours after a permanent ceasefire agreement, which we're speaking about right now. And it brings forth that question, what creates this consistent breakdown of these uh, agreements? You are right in terms of the sort of background you are providing. Because in June, the series of diplomacy from Addis Ababa uh, um, and, and also in Khartoum, expected, uh, um, you know, to have uh, another session in Nairobi. We, we had assumed, uh, uh, you know, many of us, that uh, certainly one of the dynamic in the conflict in South Sudan is this element of proxy uh, interest. And certainly the ceasefire agreement that was reached in Khartoum, where both Museveni and um, you know, al-Bashir was present, we, we thought that would now begin to deliver. Uh, uh, and yet 72 hours or almost, you know, 48 hours after that agreement, you know, fighting erupted. So I think there's a concern here to say uh, uh, the actors can sign a ceasefire on paper, but it is very difficult to implement the same, you know, on the ground. 
And now, until IGAD or the, the, the countries in the Horn are able to secure an agreement, a buy-in from the actors, including the proxies, for now we have not seen strong evidence of any ceasefire you know, uh, mm. finding traction. And in contrast to that, what these agreements actually do, they actually create more of uh, an implosion, Dr. Joanne Nyuki. I think we... Can you hear me? I'm... I can hear you very clearly now, Joanne. I struggled there, but I can hear you now. Good. Okay. Um, I wouldn't say that they create a, an, an implosion or an explosion of, of conflict, really, because they do give back and um, make a new effort and need effort and have been... Oh, we're struggling with that line, Dr. Oh, Nyanyuki. I don't know, it's because of the lines in your country there, but I'm really struggling to hear you from this side. And um, I'm not sure if it's because we're calling you from East Africa. Maybe that's the, the main problem. Um, let's, let's try that again, Dr. Joanne. Can you just try one more time for us? Is that better? Yes, that's much, much better. All right, let's try this one more time. <laughs> um, um, I think just back to your to, the, to your question and to the issues that this is really an opportunity for yeah, that line keeps collapsing there. We might have to just let go of Dr. Joanna Nyuka. So unfortunate uh, because she was giving us uh, some insight, especially because I wanted to dig into the humanitarian crisis that is in South Sudan. Uh, but let me come back to John Hirsch. Unfortunately, we can't continue with Dr. Joanne, um, John. But uh, what are your thoughts on, on, on these agreements? I think sometimes the more you have these continuous agreements that are on one issue, it's almost the kind of water down the reasons why um, that particular gathering is happening. And uh, I see more and more of an implosion every time we sign an agreement and then we go back on our word. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you. Um, you know, the last couple of ceasefires have lasted, you know, only a few hours. And, uh, the more consistently these uh, these agreements just break down so quickly, um, it just really undermines the the whole process and makes it that harder to believe that it's going to work the next time around. Um, you know, at the moment, it just seems like there's no reason for these parties to take the uh, the agreement seriously. Um, you know, despite the many reports of you know, unimaginable, just brutal violence. Uh, uh, there just is a complete lack of accountability. Um, and as the conflict continues to fragment um, with more armed groups, uh, splintered opposition, uh, um, a localization of conflict, it only first uh, stability destabilizes security throughout the country. Um, and, you know, I just think that the primary reason they're just continuing to have these breakdowns is there just haven't been any meaningful consequences for violating the agreements. And to your point, I think it does make it uh, harder to believe that somehow the next time is going to be different. Um, you know, I think that the, the creation and staffing of the hybrid court, which is called for in the uh, 2015 peace agreement, 
and a more recent memorandum of understanding from 2017 and a statute for the court, uh, that, you know, that could help solidify these agreements. Uh, but until there are consequences, there'll be continue to be breakdowns and uh, it'll just be continually more difficult to think that somehow there's going to be a breakthrough. And um, Dr. Marupia, you know, what's for me seems to be the problem, maybe it's the two egos themselves, Rek Machar, and uh, maybe it is because of uh, Salvakir himself, these two figures that seem consistently um, so set on power. Do you think we should find new mediators and new uh, stakeholders for a, a, a political future uh, for South Sudan? I know that's going to be very difficult to take that trajectory, but aren't these two the problem? So far, the relationship between, you know, Silva Kir and uh, Rek Masha, um, some have suggested that uh, we try and seek a peace settlement that, uh, you know, disables the two leaders. You know, we have an example of what we did mm. uh, as interveners in Madagascar, for example, sure. where you find the two leading actors and then you try and set them aside to then try and, you know, and find a solution. Certainly the first discussions that they had in Addis, facilitated by this shuttle diplomacy, you know, of IGAD, uh, revealed the very deep, uh, um, you know, personal uh, relationship that is broken between Silva Kir and, and Rek Masha, in that uh, President, Rick, you know, uh, Silva Kir mentioned straight off to say, we may reach an agreement, but I am not going to work with you directly. Uh, and this was, you know, stated up front. So we have this scenario where the key actors themselves appear not to have found common ground. And I think it's the Ethiopians, the Kenyans, and others who have really said, look, can you begin to look beyond your interests, you know, in a personal capacity? Because the crisis has really, uh, uh, you know, impacted very adversely on thousands and millions of um, South Sudanese. So if our colleague in Nairobi had been able to speak to us, she would have given us a sense of how, you know, almost half the population mm. is either in refugee camps or internally displaced. So for now, we have actors that do not consider, uh, uh, you know, working together. And, and, and we have no one else to work with in terms of, you know, finding, you know, a peace you know, agreement. So this is where we are, and this is the scenario that we see in South Sudan, and uh, the sanctions perhaps almost were intended for those that are in power that seek to acquire more weapons. But the sentiment I am getting from the ground is that they can use other weapons, which, you know, factors that we saw in the genocide in, in sure. Rwanda sure. in other places using machetes and, and other crude weapons. Mm. John, do you see any alternatives on a way forward? Uh, you know, sadly, I don't. I think, uh, you know, perhaps the best solution would be for for both these leaders and for some other members of the South Sudanese political leadership to just step aside and to allow the younger generation to uh, have a chance to to run the country. But uh, I don't think that that is realistic at the time. And I think as uh, 
as much as these two leaders are tied to some very terrible acts of violence, uh, they still enjoy support within their uh, their factions. And um, I just, um, you know, it's, it's a near impossible situation. Uh, I don't think that there's a credible way at the moment, at least, to, to move them both away. Uh, perhaps there could be um, in the upcoming weeks and months. But uh, for the moment, I think that... Uh, as unfortunate as it is, these are the two that we're stuck with. Um, and it's also worth noting that, you know, since the uh, the collapse of the peace deal and the violence in, in Juba that forced Mashar to flee, um, you know, it's not as simple as just even a, reach an agreement between these two. Um, you know, so many other um, groups now have their own local grievances and their own local constitu- constituencies. Um that will have to somehow also be satisfied with the with the agreement. So, um, yeah, it continues to be a difficult situation, but I don't see a way forward without somehow getting these two to, uh, if not work together, at least allow for the country to move forward. Okay, let's wrap it up and with the international. Um, bodies that can actually intervene. We're seeing a strong stance from the United States and uh, uh, the United Nations in response to that. But also we know that the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, EGAD, was very central to that, but it seems like it's also failing. While also um, the African Union, uh, Dr. Rupia, is actually have become uh, uh, almost like a uh, an all talk, no actions kind of body. It's failed when it comes to South Sudan and kind of embraced uh, uh, the current president uh, very much in its uh, uh, in its institution. And that seems to be a big problem currently, even for opposition, and not trusting that uh, uh, a, a multifaceted approach of dealing with the situation uh, could be dealt with. I think it's a trust issue. Uh, what's your thoughts on EGAD and the African Union? Maybe we have been here before. Remember the Comprehensive Peace Agreement of 2005? Mm. And uh, I think part of the or, or, you know, breaking the stalemate was to provide or, or, or a platform for, you know, civil society and communities on the ground, including, you know, church leaders, faith-based, to begin to play a role. I think the governmental structures which are manifest in IGAD, the UN, and the AU certainly have not delivered and it may well be we need to open up entry points for community-based civil society, the churches, and other players to begin to influence the positions of the two or three actors that have really not responded to you know, governmental structures. This is what I think or maybe wish to suggest you know, going forward. But really we are at a stalemate where other actors uh, uh, unarmed groups, civil society groups, must begin to have their voices heard and also begin to, uh, you know, assist towards finding a lasting solution. John, your thoughts on EGAD, African Union's role? Yeah, you know, I would, I would really agree with the last comments about the need to open up the space to uh, the non-armed groups to to have their say in in, uh, in the peace process. Uh, you know, I'm not. I, I agree that the, uh, the AU could have done more. 
Um, that's that's for sure. Um, I'm a little less pessimistic about EGAD, at least the role of the, the mediators. I think the special envoy and his staff mm-hmm. have done a really good job in an impossible situation um, and worked almost tirelessly to try to move the parties towards compromise, even if they don't want to do so themselves. Um, the high-level revitalization forums have not had the outcome that many have wanted, but um, you know the mediation team just lacks leverage to force the parties to compromise past a certain part. So, um, you know, when within EGAD, there are still rivalries uh, between the different states that sometimes look to their own interests rather than really pressuring the Sassoonese political leaders to do the right thing and to change course. But I think largely the, the EGAD mediators are doing a good job, and I think the bridging document was a good tactic to try to keep whatever pressure they had on the parties to reach a peace deal to move forward. But uh, I would agree, the more that we can have uh, the churches, the civil society groups, the women's groups, uh, the youth really have more of a say in, in, in the peace process moving forward, I think, the better. Well, thank you, Jens, for giving us your time. That was the voice of uh, John Hirsch, who is the Associate Director of Research at the Stonkton Center for the Study of International Law. I thank you for waking up early, John, for speaking to us. I know that it's very, very early in the morning there in the United States, so we appreciate your contribution. It was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you as well to Dr. Martin Rupia, the Executive Director at the African Public Policy and Research Institute. If I'm not mistaken, it's aligned to the University of South Africa. Am I correct to say that, Dr. Rupia? Yes, I'm also a visiting fellow at the African Renaissance Institute at the University of South Africa, UNISA. Thank you so much, Dr. Rupia. We really appreciate your uh, contribution as well uh, to this debate. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Unfortunately, we had to let go of Dr. Joanne Nyanyuki, as we're calling her from East Africa. I think she was based in Nairobi, Kenya. The lines weren't that very great, but we also thank her for her availability. She is uh, the International Director uh, for Amnesty International in East Africa and the Horn and the, the Great Lakes.